Okay, so we've been exploring the seven factors of awakening, which is pretty interesting area. I think what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about them is that they're they're all factors of mind, of practice that we've kind of heard before. They in and of themselves are not that surprising. The sense of how they link together and arise from each other and are all pointed in the direction of awakening, that's pretty interesting. And I think part of what I'll suggest, and of course, I I don't just make this stuff up. I look around and do a lot of referencing and before I offer anything. But it's a way to hold our practice and see it in the context of the journey to awakening and even different aspects of what we're doing and to kind of hold it in that way and see how it how it unfolds. So it's pretty wonderful there. There are uh, it's kind of this unique unique gift of the Buddha, of the Buddha. And you know, there's lots of lists, as many of you know, in the Dharma that approach that describe the path in different ways or different entry points. Um, and this is this is one of them. Uh, Gil Franzdahl, he says they're, they're known as inner wealth. And I'm going to quote him. I'll quote Joseph Goldstein and a few others. Uh, Gil says, Buddhist practice develops ordinary capacities so that they can serve on the path of awakening. Rather than cultivating new abilities, with this practice we learn to identify, appreciate, and strengthen ones we already have. Doing so, we discover that these capacities are treasures within. And the seven are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. See, those are all words anyone who's been around the Dharma. You've heard all those words before. But it's how they're put together here that for, for some of you may open up a new light, new sense of direction that can be really, really helpful. And it, it's interesting in the Buddha's lists how, how things are, I don't know how to put it. I've, I've, I've developed enormous confidence in what he said because when he structures something, when you look into it, it more and more becomes self-evident that in fact that's the case. It's pretty amazing. And these seven, there's another list, the the 16 steps of Anapanasati, which we've talked about before, of mindfulness of breathing. And there's a way in which they are also interconnected in a different kind of way. But it's also sort of more structured that. It's almost something that we choose our way through in those 16, perhaps. But these are very organic. They just kind of fall in. Each one falls into the next. And so it's uh, it's very helpful to have that sense of things that help us keep our compass, our inner compass, because that's where people struggle a lot. You know, it's like, how do I keep going? Where's this going? Kind of out there in the world bunch of other distractions. So this is one way that might be a useful tool for some of you. Even if some little facet sticks in your heart, you carry it home. This is great. And the, and, and the thought that these seven, you know, relatively straightforward 
aspects are actually a path to Buddhahood is pretty wonderful because that can seem kind of far away. Here we are in 2023 in the middle of our working lives or our family lives or whatever complexities we're dealing with. And then, you know, the difficulties of the world, climate change, war, all these difficulties. So that in the middle of all that, that there can be something tangible that we can work with that is in fact heading us in that direction. The Buddha said about these seven, he said, just as monks in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, monks, the monk who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of wisdom, slopes to nibbana, inclines to nibbana, tends to nibbana. He uses language like that a lot about like inclining to nibbana, a sense that there's a gradualness and inevitableness. We can keep tipping or tilting in that direction. And this is, this is one of these like, you know, investigate it for yourself and your own practice. But a key point is how each one emerges from the other. And that's something we, we really need to like look at and see what rings for us. You know, it's gotta, it has to click in your hearts and your, and your view to make it make sense. And then in terms, and then uh, forgive me if I get too listy. I'm, I'm pre apologizing because there's two areas where these seven show up in other lists. And one of the key lists is, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is where the Buddha taught how to do this mindfulness practice. And depending on which version, the Chinese version or the Pali version, it's either the, the very last or the next to last one is the seven factors. So there's a real sense that you're moving into a subtlety to be aware of that it's really, it's, it's part of reality to be mindful of, part of phenomena to be mindful of. So it's not just like some theory the Buddha woke up, made up. It's like something he recognized, saw, and then offered as part of his brilliance. We'll see patterns that we can't in our mundaneness. And he said, oh, it's put together this way. Check it out. And then in the, which we'll probably talk about this year sometime, but in the teachings on the Anapanasati Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, where there are 16 steps after that sutta, then he talks about how the 16 steps fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness. And then he talks about how the four foundations of mindfulness fulfill these seven factors. So there's this huge lacing together of lists right there that's very listy, to be sure, but also pretty amazing and worth, you know, investigating. So last time, Last session, we talked about explored mindfulness, investigation, and energy and how they follow from one another. And, you know, just to recap for a second, you know, we work on cultivating mindfulness. And in the process of that, as we become more mindful, there's a sense of which we lean into what we're mindful of. We find ourselves understanding it, wanting to understand it, wanting to see what we see. Investigation doesn't mean like cognitively thinking about, but just an attitude of looking into. And that just arises naturally in the practice. And if that's clicking, as that's clicking, energy 
arises. I mean, it's pretty engaging. You you want to lean in. We want to lean in. We're curious, curious about what we're seeing. It's like the veils have lifted a bit, kind of seen directly. So this energy arises from that. So that's how the first three kind of go in sequence. And the last four are joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So joy, it's uh, pitti, is the word in Pali. It's often has an energy quality. It's in the jhanas, which are the states of concentration. Pitti is the same word, probably a kind of a different usage a little bit. But it arises inherently from investigation and from this sense of energy as this this joy arises as energy, and then there's this kind of uplifting joy that happens. Kind of a lightness of spirit that pulls us forward just from the fact that we're investigating and we're mindful. And it also inherently arises from wholesome states, because that's part of how we practice, is we cultivate wholesome states and not unwholesome states. So when we're being cultivating those as we practice, then pity will tend to arise, can arise from being mindful of the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha, the triple gem, where we have a confidence in knowing that, that that's the source of all this, or from investigating our cultivation of ethics or generosity, all those wholesome things we do, that joy arises from them. Joseph Goldstein says, it is this fourth factor of awakening rapture, that's another synonym, that fills us with a joy in the Dhamma and inspires us to fulfill this great journey. Rapture is the quality of intense interest, and it arises from a close and caring attention to whatever is arising. It is just the opposite of boredom, which is a lack of attention. And Ledi, Ledi Sayada, a Burmese master, said, Rapture is the joy and happiness that appears when the power of seeing and knowing investigation increases. So it's just this innate sense that comes up from our practice and that carries us along. And the beautiful thing is it's helping to carry us along toward awakening. It's it's part of this progression. So to hold it in that way can be really helpful. The next stage is a Pali word, pasati, which can be translated as calm or tranquility or serenity or composure. You know, when you think about it, if we're going through this sort of progression and we're mindfully, joyfully investigating things and this joy arises, then kind of calm comes next. It's just a relaxation into calm. Just a peaceful place because what what would be the problem? Why not? You know, everything is pretty good at that point. Joseph says, Asadi encompasses both physical composure and mental tranquility. It is this quality of calm that keeps the mind composed and unruffled in times of difficulty. Buddhist psychology describes how it brings along with it other wholesome states such as lightness, wieldiness, proficiency, and sincerity. So it's a it's a state of relaxedness or okayness with how things are, with what is, with our state. And that's 
pretty amazing right there, you know, just to be calm, to not be trying to get anything else, to not wanting anything to change. And then from calm comes concentration in this in this progression as this is laid out. You know, this one point is settling into this moment. And the hindrances are quieted as part of the cultivating the wholesome. The hindrances are quieted. There's nothing to pull us away from now. And we sort of inherently develop samadhi, which is the state of concentration, or you could say not not clenched-minded, but just a steadiness of attention, a relaxed steadiness of attention. And this is interesting because, you know, samadhi is, it's a kind of a complex subject in this tradition because it's emphasized differently by different teachers and different aspects of the tradition whether it comes before or after mindfulness or how they two fit together but it's often it can seem difficult like a big challenge like a big lift to get into the jhanas like it's hard you have to really work at it but here it's a sense that it just emerges in just this multi-step just relaxation and it came right after calmness concentration just arises. So it's really beautiful to hold it in that way. It can be helpful to not think of it as such a project, but something that's just naturally kind of blossoming. Because this is, you know, the when people talk about their practice, the thing that they most often see as a difficulty is busy mind and buzzing thoughts and all that. So to see a, a steadiness just kind of Evolving naturally is a beautiful, a beautiful point of view. So it's more of a settling than a striving. And think of where it's come from. It's come from joy. It's come from calm. So you can sort of hold it in the way this progression happens. And this sense of this theme of relaxed happiness, you know, it's really... In the Buddha's own journey, as as some of you know, before he was awakened, before he awakened, he was on an ascetic path, which had a path which had a lot of struggling and self denial, and he starved himself almost to the point of of dying, and was really, you know, sort of pushing. Then he remembered. There's this beautiful little thing in the suttas where he remembered as a child, I don't know, adolescent where, oh yeah, I think he was pretty young, a child, where he was sitting under a rose apple tree in his shade and his father, who was a sort of a king or a minor royalty, was engaged in a um, kind of a festival of, of plowing, like a spring festival. He was out there ceremonially plowing some land. He, he wasn't a farm worker, but doing this, and the Buddha just was relaxed and happy, and his mind just fell into this steady, bright, happy awareness in the moment. And he remembered that as the ascetic and said, oh, that's the way to do it. That's the direction to go. Not all this striving, just relax into it. But we can't do that unless you cultivate wholesomeness. You know, that's where it ties in with the whole idea of how we live and choices we make. Then, then comes that way. And wholesomeness also means cultivating wholesome states of mind, you know, body, speech, and mind, or how we conduct the choices we make, body, that's really overt, what we do, speech, what we say, but mind, what we think. So to cultivate all those and find a wholesome way 
then these 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 qualities of the seven factors can emerge more just kind of naturally. I mean, that's the whole point of this. This is natural. Emphasizing the naturalness of this. And then this all this leads to the seventh factor with equanimity. You know, it's so interesting that the seventh factor didn't lead to nibbana in this list. It leads to equanimity. And so that really, there's something to look at there. And there's a lot to look at. Equanimity is interesting because there's something called the, the Brahma Viharas, the, uh, the divine abodes, which are four qualities that we can cultivate, loving kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, rejoicing in others, good fortune, and then equanimity is the fourth of those. And that one's close to wisdom. It kind of all these are loving kindness aspects. And then equanimity is where they, the wisdom and the loving kindness kind of interconnect in that particular model. So, here, this being a different avenue into equanimity, a different way of holding it, perhaps. But it sort of pulls things together in a beautiful way. Joseph writes, equanimity arises out of concentration in the sequential progression of the seven awakening factors because concentration has the power to keep the mind secluded from the hindrances. This seclusion then allows for balance and neutrality to be established and the mind to be unmoving in the face of pleasure or pain. And you think about the naturalness of that, you know? It allows for balance and neutrality, so it allows for it to happen. And the mind doesn't move in the face of pleasure and pain. It's It's not like a flat line. It's not an oppressing. It just doesn't move. It's a it's a relaxed steadiness. So a being who has perfected equanimity has this kind of open consistency despite changing conditions, which is what the Buddha was. You know, he had this amazing balance. You watch in the suttas, all kinds of things happen, and he he continually like responds. He steps into he connects with difficulty, but he doesn't get knocked down or freaked out. It's this real sense of presence. So the Dalai Lama is like that too. You know, lots of lots of complications he's had to deal with. I mean, how about getting kicked out of your country? You know, having an invader kill a million people and destroy most of the monastic institutions. And he's takes that in, but he doesn't get frazzled uncentered. He doesn't lose his love and his awareness. So equanimity is a beautiful kind of doorway understanding of what awakening is and how these seven take us there. And you might, you know, sometimes we talk about the eight worldly dharmas. These are the kind of the pairs of things we encounter, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, disrepute. But that kind of sums up, you know, the human human journey, the human paradox, the difficulties of life, to be able to have a steadiness of heart and 
awareness and presence in the middle of all those. That's pretty remarkable. The third Zen ancestor said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. So it really calls on us to just be present and not get entangled. That's the letting go, letting go. And this kind of interconnects. You know, we talk a lot about the three characteristics, impermanence, non-self, and dukkha. This kind of interconnects there. It's like another meeting point. Joseph says, if we persevere on the path, we reach the culmination of mundane meditative insights, which is a powerful state of equanimity about all formations. This is a state of deep delight, born of peace. Here, the mind is not disturbed at all by the alteration of pleasant and unpleasant experience. We abide in a smooth current of awareness without even the slightest micro-movements of reaction in the mind. Smooth current of awareness. So, you know, just this is kind of short, I know, but that's how it is. So, um, you know, just for whatever that works for you, just to kind of hold this path as a real natural evolution is really kind of beautiful because we can tend to think of it as a big complicated thing to figure out. But just that these aspects just come one from another and it's a way to look at them as we practice. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And see if that uh, helps the journey ahead. I'll just sit for a moment. 